This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hey, it's Ron. This episode was recorded before I launched Politicology when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have questions, comments, or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com or find us online at politicology.com. Enjoy. Hello from the Lincoln Project. I'm Ron Steslow. Welcome back to our weekly roundup, where we bring in a rotating panel of experts to discuss the truth you need to know behind the most important stories of the week and how they're shaping the political landscape of this election. We have, as usual, an outstanding panel today with three of my fellow co-founders of the Lincoln Project, Steve Schmidt, a national political strategist who's worked for President George W. Bush, Senator John McCain, and Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. Steve, thanks for taking the time. Thanks, Ron. Independent political strategist and our captain on this ship, Reed Galen. Reed, it is great to have you back again. Thanks, Ron. And communication strategist and former chair of the New Hampshire Republican Party, Jennifer Horn. Jennifer, welcome back. Always good to be here, Ron. Thank you. On today's episode, we're going to talk about the dueling Biden and Trump town halls from Thursday night and the Supreme Court nomination hearings for Judge Amy Coney Barrett. Thursday night, Trump and Biden each held their own town halls after Trump refused to participate in a previously scheduled debate between the two candidates. The Washington Post described the two town halls as a study in contrasts. Their article laid it out. Trump spun a web of falsehoods like a whirling dervish, while Biden talked in depth and at length on a range of policy issues. So, before we dig into all of the most memorable moments here, what were your reactions to the town halls? And can you talk about the differences between the Trump town hall and the Biden town hall? Um, I would note that Fox reporter German Lopez described Biden as delightfully boring. Reed, what was your take? Well, I thought that uh, Mercedes Schlapp uh, also said it was like watching Mr. Rogers, which I'm not sure why she thought that was a... A pejorative, uh, <laughs> given the beloved nature of Mr. Rogers uh, in this country for so many of us. Um, yeah, I thought that, uh, you know, it was like everything. Um, the vice president was calm. He was collected. He seemed at ease. Uh, he answered the questions. Um, I thought Stephanopoulos, you know, challenged him a couple of times. And I thought it was generally good. I think it was also very interesting that when the town, when the town hall was over, he stuck, he stuck around for like another hour taking questions. And so I think that he felt very much at ease, whereas... The president was never going to do anything other than what he did because that's who he is. And I think that, you know, Savannah Guthrie wasn't – it was interesting because she had a strategy – clearly had a strategy going in, um, which was, you know, keep him moving. Don't let him – don't let him BS her, you know, at least, you know, on a – on an un um, – you know, an uncontested front. So I thought that, that she did a good job and he did what he always does, which is he lies or he, you know, he says, well, people say he yeah. loves his straw yeah. man. Yeah, he does love his straw man. Jennifer, what did you think about the interaction between Savannah and Donald Trump? I loved it. <laughs> I loved it. I thought Savannah Guthrie was really strong and um, I don't want to get, you know, 
uh, too much into like the, the 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 girly side of it. But when the camera came out and she was wearing that that bright pink um, pantsuit, I was like, that girl is here for business. She was coming on strong. You know, I I that that by itself sent a message at least to every woman out there. Like she 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 was there that she was taking this seriously, and I loved her approach with him. I loved her strength. I loved the fact that she pushed back on him when he was being obviously dishonest. I love, you know, she, you know, held him accountable to his own answers. Uh, I love that she, that she was so well prepared and she's so smart and she could get through every one of these, you know, issues to the next, to the next, to the next. She wasn't just asking questions. She knows what she's talking about. She is knowledgeable and informed. And I love the fact that Donald Trump played right into it. You know, in in regular form, as you know, as as expected, Donald Trump just played right into it. He cannot stand to be confronted by a strong, intelligent woman. And, and it shows every time that he has to that he has to engage at that level. It comes through. So I thought she was terrific. Steve, if we were to just zoom out and, you know, what, what would what would the takeaways be? From the optics of both of these two town halls, how would you def- how how would you describe the contrast? Look, Trump was completely unhinged. Uh, he was crazed, sweating, manic, um, lying, engaged in conspiracy theories. I- I'm just trying to if if there was a situation, let's just say there were 50 people, right? That 25 of them were on bus one, and 25 of them were on bus two. Mm-hmm. And, and you were going to be dropped off somewhere in the middle of the wilderness. And you, you had to pick a leader, right? And, and Biden is, is leader one and Trump is leader two. Uh, who the hell would follow Trump into a dangerous situation? I, I just, it's astounding to me. Um, you, you, I went back and I watched the QAnon answer a second time. I mean, it was one of the more incredible moments of the entire campaign in my, in my view. Um, it was insane. Yeah. Describe it for our listeners. Savannah Guthrie to her everlasting credit. And, and none of this stuff is rocket science becomes the first reporter to look him in the eye and, and explain what QAnon is. And, and she, she didn't let it go. Um, and she talked about it with the, the, the breathless, insanity that it deserves to be talked about right mm-hmm. just incredulous mm-hmm. right there's a you know satanic pedophile ring that's in control of the government and trump is basically saying yeah it could be and you know again it's, it's just astounding and it just in that moment maybe more so than any journalist in four years she she showed the country his just total unfitness and craziness, craziness. Well, I would say too that on the along that's when she was in that same line of questioning, she asked him why he had retweeted the conspiracy theory about Joe Biden and Barack Obama, you know, murdering SEAL Team Six because they really wanted to let Bin Laden go. And he goes, "It's a retweet. I let people think what they want, whatever people want to think about something." And it was just like, "Oh, okay, that's that's where we are." The President of the United States trying to explain QAnon as an anti-pedophilia activist organization, essentially. I mean, that was insane, insane. 
And to Reed's point, the president of the United States, he's not just some Joe Schmo down the street who says, look at this, you know, interesting headline. I'm going to retweet it. He's the leader of the free world. And he is retweeting the grossest and most thoroughly debunked conspiracy theories out there. And he's standing on a debate stage in his reelection saying, Oh, it's not like I, you know, I just do it. I just retweet it. It just let yeah. let people read it and let yeah. them decide what they think. This right. is craziness. Yeah. Yeah. This yeah. is craziness. And, and, Savannah Guth- and Savannah Guthrie said, "Well, you're not someone's crazy uncle." Right. To which Mary Trump retweeted, <laughs> "Well, I saw that. I saw that. He actually is somebody's crazy uncle." So, is it is it fair to say? And each of you feel feel free to weigh in on this. But is it fair to say that he did not do anything to rehabilitate oh himself after the not after the close. debacle, which was the first debate? Even though she did successfully get him to say, "I condemn white supremacy," he's unraveling. Um, he's unraveling and it's the, it's, this is all going down and that's, that's what we're watching. It it will become clearer after, after the results are, after the results are in. But, uh, the craziest thing that he said, and it goes to the heart of it. And this was, this was another great moment. He finally said it, which is give me four more years because I've done a great job. (laughs) Right. And that's, and that's the. You know, that's the fundamental dividing line, I suppose. Yeah. Um, you know, the overwhelming, overwhelming majority of the country yeah. does not believe that. Right. Um, They're not going to look around themselves and see right. a job well done. That's not what the American people are seeing. And you just saw someone who's just completely out of his out of his depth. And, you know, for whatever for whatever reason, and there's a lot of them, um, we, we could talk for hours about it. We could, we could talk through the day and, and, you know, and, in through the night and into the morning is, um, you have a followership of his, uh, a fan base, whatever, whatever you want to call it. It's called the personality is that something has broken so profoundly in American politics that they would consciously with some level of agency, choose that over Joe Biden. And, and it's just, whether you agree with the policies or not, right? It's just Trump is just demonstrably unfit, unfit. I, who in their right mind would would put him in charge of the world's most powerful nuclear arsenal for four more years? It's just just amazing. Well, and I thought I'd be interested to see, too, uh, once once the ratings are out, yeah. whether or not, you know, I, I could make an argument for why either one would have gotten higher ratings. Yep. For if if Biden comes out with more viewers, it's yep. because America wants to see its next president. Yep. And if Trump comes out, it's because they want to see how big a train wreck he could be. Yeah. And it to was, Steve's point, the yeah. the commodity in media is conflict, right? right? That's the over it's the overarching commodity. Yeah. yeah. You know what I thought was really interesting though last night, and you know, more seriously, I keep sitting here saying it's crazy, it's crazy, it's crazy. He was genuinely mentally and emotionally yeah. unstable and yeah. dangerous looking on that stage last yeah. night. He, yeah. he, in a way, I mean, he always comes across like that to most of most Americans, but I think it was in a manner and to a degree that I, I bet he lost some of his own supporters when he, when he sat or sort of sat, stood on the stool, the way he was leaning against it. Um, and he said, Eighty-five percent of the people who wear masks get COVID, get coronavirus, and he talked about 
Um, I mean, he just had, you know, he's like, I'm, I, he, I'm okay with masks. He's not, we all know better. He stood on the balcony and ripped it off in his big Avita moment. But there was just something, there was something different. His tone, his demeanor. I felt like we were really watching him go from just being this horrible human being to a genuinely mentally dangerously unstable person. Like he was falling apart. So let's talk about that claim for a minute, because it wasn't just that he said it. He claimed falsely that the Centers for Disease Control put out a statement saying that 85% of people who wear masks catch the coronavirus, which is which is patently false. It's completely untrue. And, 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 and even after he himself contracted the virus, he continues to dissuade people from wearing masks. So how should we be thinking about, how should voters be thinking about these claims when he continues to undermine the best science that our public health experts have to offer. They are provably false. They are provably false. And it's not, and he, and that's why he has tried to um, undermine the credibility of Dr. Fauci exactly for this reason, because he, he needs to be able to say anything he wants to keep his people on board and not have them say, oh, look, there's an educated doctor who disagrees with you, you know, and, and this, this is just classic Trump. I mean, he, his, his references, you know, are his, his sources are always, well, some people, some people are saying, well, not all the doctors say that some doctors say this, but he can't find a single doctor anywhere who says it. I just think if in this moment, among a hundred other things, it is so important to remind people, Donald Trump is full of shit. He doesn't know what he's talking about and he will say anything. Like you have to keep yourself safe. You have to listen to the CDC. You have to listen to Dr. Fauci. Wear your mask when you go in the grocery store. Make your kids wear it when they go to school. Like Donald Trump is a crazy, uninformed, dangerous person. And that's what I think was re, was was you know amplified or reiterated on the stage last night. And to what I said a second ago, I think he may have lost some of his own base support after that performance. Yeah. So Reed, mm. last night to this point about COVID, when Trump was asked about whether he was tested on the day of the presidential debate, he said, I don't even remember. I test all the time. Possibly I did. Possibly I didn't. Can you, can you talk about why he would be ambiguous about when he was tested and what it says about how seriously this White House is taking the coronavirus threat still? Well, they're not taking it seriously, and he doesn't want to say because if he was positive and they knew it, then he, you know, was actively putting at risk his opponent of catching the damn thing. And so, you know, mm-hmm. he doesn't want to be responsible for that because responsibility isn't his bag. He's so allergic to it. I would also say that, you know, um, I noted that I saw a couple of the, I don't think I saw any family members there, but I could be wrong. And I don't think I recognized any of the staff members. Mm. And so you've got family members who are either scattered around the country campaigning or have gone to ground and the staff is still sick. Right. So like right. even, even the best of what he had, and that's a dubious word mm-hmm. for them, uh, is like unavailable. So now there's no one there who can even try and keep him under control. Yeah. Like nobody's in charge. No. <laughs> Um, Steve, Trump claimed last night that there were thousands of ballots dumped in a garbage can, and I'm quoting, and they happen to have my name on it. They have Joe Biden's name on it, too. (laughs) He has spent most of the campaign peddling lies about voting by mail and the damage that he has done to, to faith in the democratic process of this election. Uh, is is truly astounding, and we've talked about it before. But can you can you talk a bit about why their campaign is pushing this narrative and how it could impact 
the election. It, it's appalling, and it's not true. It's a, it's all lies, and you know he's been very clear about this, which is that um, under no circumstances is is Donald Trump going to respect the will of the American people. He's going to talk about the stab in the back, the betrayal uh, that this was stolen from him and his people, and forevermore. Um, you know, we'll have 25, 30 percent of the country that will opt out of reality in the sense that they'll always question the legitimacy of the of the election. And the the crazy part about all of it is going to be in the future, how it bears on um, the 2024 race. Mm, say more about that. When you start a campaign for for president, if you're the Democratic, if you're a Democratic candidate, you go to New Hampshire. And you give a speech somewhere that establishes your progressive bona fides. And same with the same with the Republican candidate. Every one of these candidates, and I'm going to exempt Larry Hogan and Charlie Baker because they may be the representatives from reality in the Republican Party who who run. As much as I would like to see one of them be the Republican nominee, I think neither of them has a chance. Um, but but the but the Republican candidates, the bona fides they're going to be looking to establish um, will be to the majority of the party who will not accept the legitimacy of the result. And so these candidates will go and they'll do the circuit. They'll be on Sean Hannity's show and they'll be asked the question, do you think the election was legitimate? And every one of them is going to say no. And so the the reality is that for for years to come now, we're, we're going to be mired in this spider web of insanity and nonsense and conspiracy that surrounds and abounds uh, the Trump organization, the Trump presidency, the man himself. And it's terrible, terrible for the country. So, Steve, could I ask you to talk a bit about how you think we move past that in a healthy way as a country? How, what, it, what will it take? For us to move past, I mean, there's all kinds of damage to our to our institutions that have been done by this president. But specifically, the loss in faith, the the distrust that you just mentioned. What is it going to take for America to rebound from that? How do we heal from that? How do we restore our our trust? You know, part part of my conservatism, you know, such as it is, is is temperamental. Um, small C. It's it's about a personal belief in the qualities of restraint, believe in incrementalism, you know, don't, don't have a personality necessarily that seeks to boil, boil the ocean. So really at the heart of the, the question, what the problem is now is we need to remove all of the crazy people from positions of power and responsibility, right? And that's different from trying to deal with crazy people. Because in the end, I'm not sure you can fix crazy. Here's what you can fix. You, you don't have a Michael Caputo in the HHS interfering with CDC guidance in a pandemic that's killed 200,000 people and is going to kill 400,000 people. Who does the president listen to? We have a radiologist with no public health expertise no infectious disease expertise that is in the ear of the president whispering bullshit to him. 
And the world's leading infectious disease expert, Anthony Fauci, has to deal with that idiot. So all all the way through the depth and breadth of the government is the rooting out of the whack jobs. Step one. Um, Step two is we're going to need to have a series of reforms in this in this country. Um, It is a national disgrace when you see the length of these voting lines. Right. That that tells you right off. Right. We need a new Civil Rights Act. Right. We need a Voting Rights Act. And I'm I'm saying this. If you got a governor in a state like Georgia, I lock him up after the election, indict him. Right. If if that's what the system is is bearing, it should be illegal. Um, We need to have election interference security acts from foreign governments. We need ethics reform. Um, You know, obviously, when you look at things like the Hatch Act and prohibitions against the use of governmental property and all of it, it's all bullshit. It's toothless. You know, it's clear that you could do you could do whatever whatever you want or, you know, with no consequence on that. That shouldn't be the case. You step by step, you you reform faith in in trust in government by government performing competently what it's supposed to be what it's supposed to be doing it's it's going to take a very very long time yeah reed i would also say that when when a president biden takes office and they start to fill out his administration whenever someone who understands like the boundaries by which the trump people broke through and attempts to utilize that for whatever reason like they got to go to yeah Right. Yeah. Like the, the, yeah. the, the Biden, the Biden administration can't say, look how bad Donald Trump was and then put up with it. Like That's we got to right. get back to a time when the White House liaison calls and says you have a Hatch Act violation like that person needs to understand that that means the next step is they're going to lose their job. And that's the argument. Everything that Stephen Reid just said is the is the best comprehensive argument for why Republicans in this cycle should be voting for Joe Biden. That's it yeah. right there. Yeah. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. Let's move now to the Supreme Court nomination. The Senate Judiciary Committee concluded its fourth and final day of hearings for the nomination of Judge Amy Coney Barrett to fill an open seat on the United States Supreme Court after Ruth Bader Ginsburg died last month. Committee Chairman Lindsey Graham announced that they would hold a vote to approve Barrett's nomination next Thursday, just 26 days after Barrett was announced as the nominee. Steve, I want to start with you on this topic because you've actually been a part of the Supreme Court nomination process during the Roberts and Alito confirmations. Can you talk about what usually goes into the nomination and hearing process and how this one has been different from those processes? Well, I'll just give you a quick example. Um, yeah. Man, we, we were scared shitless of offending the sensibilities or prerogatives of Arlen Specter, who was the chairman of the Judiciary Committee, and was fierce in asserting the prerogatives of that committee. Um, 
And so a couple of omissions were in the news this week about Amy Coney Barrett not disclosing um, answers to, you know, positions that she's had, um, you know, gave a speech somewhere, it, 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 not big stuff, but, but, but titanic stuff in the context historically of a Supreme Court nomination, which would have derailed the hearings, you know, for weeks. At a at a different at a different time, so what what you see now is there's not even a pretense um, of the Senate fulfilling its advice and and consent duties. It's just a total total rubber stamp. You know, this is a lifetime appointment. Um, she may be on the bench for for fifty years. the The issue with the court in in American life is this has gotten completely uh, it's gone completely off the rails the the intensity of these judicial confirmation fights um it's just a, a sign of our brokenness and our politics and our in our institutions and you know i think one of the things that that we have to think about is ending uh the lifetime appointments you know maybe it's a 20 year appointment or a, or a 15 year term appointment um, but what we see in this is the outsized importance that the third branch of government has taken on uh, in our life. And if you look at the fights, people in this country don't understand uh, what the role of the Supreme Court is in our society. It's not a collection of nine superheroes who look for injustice and try to root it out. Um, they interpret the law. Um, you know, is it constitutional? Is it not? You know, they're not a super legislative body. And so when you when you look at the totality of all of this, I mean, what, what's so unfortunate about this nomination is and we've talked about this in previous podcasts. I mean, this is what James Madison wrote about in Federalist 10. You know, this is the danger of faction. This is an overzealous and overbearing majority imposing its will against the rights of the minority. So you look at all the hypocrisy involved in this. You know the Senate, um, in someone's pipe dream, is is an institution. You know that's still the world's greatest deliberative body. I mean, what a joke that is. It will further erode the confidence of the American people in the Supreme Court. You know, as an outcome of 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 this process, and inherently, um, this process was not good for the public good. In our in our institutions, and and what I what I hope with a Biden presidency is that, and I, I was really reassured listening to him um, when he talked about the four to eight Republican senators that he believes will work with him, and I and I think he's right to to some degree that that there will be a there will be a break in in the in the in the insanity, but. You want somebody in there who understands that we have to stop breaking our institutions, right? We we gotta we gotta stop hitting them with sledgehammers, you know, every every day, every week, and and that's what this is about. It's just this was all unnecessary. Um, you know, the truth of the matter is, um, you know, this should have been Trump's second vacancy, and if it was. I don't have a problem with the Barrett nomination any more than I have a problem with the Sotomayor Kagan nomination. You know, Ruth Bader Ginsburg was right. You know, terms for president 
are four years. The, the issue here is the Garland nomination and, and the utter outrageous abuse of the institution, the, the, the partisan nature of, of McConnell's decision-making in a, in a way that hurts the country. And, and so that's why this is bad. And just so we're clear, when you refer to the Garland nomination, you're talking about the refusal to hold a vote for that for that justice. Just so our listeners are that's clear. That's right. That's yeah. right. The, re- the refusal by Republicans to hold a vote on a not on a nominee from a Democratic president. That's the that's the problem. How they abuse the yeah. process. Right. And we should note that the average time from the nomination of a Supreme Court justice to the final Senate vote is around 70 days, just under 70 days. So this is um, being done very, very quickly in the, in the, in the, in the scope of a, of a Supreme Court nomination. But Reed, I wonder if you could talk about the fact that Judge Barrett refused to express a view on the question of peaceful transfer of power or whether the president can unilaterally delay a general election, what is that signal to you? And how should the American people think about those non-answers as they are currently voting? And and then maybe, Steve, you might want to follow up on this in, in terms of just how close this nomination comes to what is most, you know, one of the most contested elections potentially in our history and what you might advise a nominee to say well this thing was cooked from the moment she was nominated so um they knew the white house knew because of course they had they had trump's biggest lackey running the deal that he was never going to ask any serious questions himself and certainly the republicans weren't either um although i guess ben sass did ask her to name the five freedoms in the first amendment she had trouble doing that so maybe that's a concerning issue um but i i think that it just it it, it didn't matter I mean, why even hold the hearing? Um, she wasn't going to answer. She didn't answer any questions. I mean, we. I mean, she is a. We assume she is a conservative politically, which may or may not equate to a conservative jurist. We don't know. Um, but she's going to take a seat on the Supreme Court, and the American people have no idea who she is. Right. She is. She is opaque. Right. And so this is what I mean. So, how much preparation usually goes in into? Uh, a a Supreme Court nominee uh, preparing to answer questions in front of the Senate Judiciary Committee. And and it it seems to me, maybe this is accurate, maybe it's not, but these nominations um, over the course of time, we've been learning less and less about uh, about how these judges would um, even on even on non-controversial questions around the law, for example, peaceful transfer of power, we really learned nothing about what ought to be a settled question. Is that, is that fair? I mean, I just, to me, it's amazing that, you know, Steve has said this really since the moment we launched last December that, I mean, you know, he mentioned, he mentioned Senator Specter, but you know, there's Senator McCain or, you know, then Senator Lyndon Baines Johnson, um, all of these people going back throughout the history of this country who were, who understood the power of being a United States Senator and understood the power of that chamber in our government. And we're going to make sure that the president, whoever they were, whomever they were, um, was going to understand that like you might, we might share a party, but you don't get to tell us what to do. And every member, every Republican member of that of that committee, basically like was in on it. Um, they and they have totally sacrificed for this guy, whatever it is they would have. And so, like, why do they even come to work every day? Why don't they just say McConnell? 
here's my vote card. You know, when it's time, just put it in the machine and press yes. Right. And so to me, it's it to, to extend on Steve's thoughts. I mean, this to me is there's the there's the political betrayal. There's the you know, there's the ethical betrayal. And then there's the institutional betrayal that they have just decided it's just maybe it's just easier. Right. But, you know, you don't you don't run for the United States Senate, I hope, to, to go to work because it's easy every day. You go because, you know, there are problems. And these guys and most they're mostly guys just don't care. So. Jennifer, people are voting right now. And and whether Republican voters agree or disagree with the qualifications of Judge Barrett, uh, how would you advise them to think about the way this nomination process has been handled? Well, first, I want to go back to something that Reed just said. He talked about the institutions that you know are being destroyed here uh, by the Republican majority, by, by what's happening under Donald Trump. And I think every time we say that, Reed talks about the institutions, Steve talks about the institutions, we often do. It, I, don't, I don't think that that's personal enough for people to understand what they mean. It is a bit the, abstract. You know, yeah. the institutions, it, it's not just this, you know, kind of this cold, gray concrete building somewhere in a city far away from where you live. Those institutions are what protect us as individuals in our daily lives. It's what makes it okay for us to speak up. It's what makes it okay for us to vote wherever we want, to carry a sign and, and you know, protest when we want to, to educate our children the way we, that, we, that we want to, to, to work, to provide for our families. I mean, those institutions, institutions are very personal. And when they are undermined or ultimately destroyed, we are all going to feel a very close impact from that. So we should not, we should not, you know, let that be brushed off in a way as if, yeah, well, that's just, you know, some, something in DC. It's not, it's your, it's you, it's Mm -hmm. every day in your life. Mm -hmm. Number one, number two, to your question, Ron, about, um, you know, looking at the process and what you would be thinking about it. It's just another case of a Republican Senate majority gone mad. You know, they are on this insane power trip since the day Donald Trump was elected that has completely, uh, I was going to say, blinded them to what is right. I don't think that's right. It has, it has so, um, it has so empowered their lust and greed for power that they have become a whole different, a whole different whole different people, whole different operation down there. Mm -hmm. So I'm Mm -hmm. not one who's really actually that, I'm not overly concerned about Amy Coney Barrett becoming a Supreme Court justice, only because of two things. One, while I find the process incredibly hypocritical and, um, and damaging in so many ways, the truth is they are constitutionally on sound ground. So the president gets to nominate, they get to confirm. Um, and what we have seen is that uh, the la- justice, um, justices that everybody thought were going to be so conservative that they were going to destroy the country, Kavanaugh, Gorsuch, and even Roberts have made decisions in the last have uh, made decisions in the last four years that have been disappointing to the most conservative in the Republican Party. So I would like to I have faith that as a justice, a sitting judge, that she is bringing to this role, what they will, what, what they are, what we are starting to see from them, that they bring, have brought to it. It's the process that's the problem. And it mm. borders on corrupt. It is so bad. And it's not just to Reed's point where he said, you know, they may as well just give McConnell their voting card and not bother coming to work in the morning to say, I vote for whatever Trump wants. 
The same thing, just to, to expand the conversation for a second, the same thing is exactly true of the party itself. At the convention, they voted to not have a platform and instead released a statement saying, whatever Trump wants, we support Trump. The mm. political... That goes right to read Exactly. Point. Yeah. The political process, in, in our, in the, especially in the Republican Party, is so broken and so corrupt that it literally undermines everything that we do at this point. It's not just yeah. the Supreme Court uh, nomination process. It is across the board. Everything that happens now has been, uh, uh, to, to Rick Wilson's point, everything Trump touches dies. Steve, you're leaning in. Look, it is a corrupted process um, by any reasonable definition. And, you know, I have a 16-year-old daughter, and when she got a driver's license, um, you know, we did we did some car basics, right? This, this is how you put air in the tires, and this is how you check the oil. But, but the number one lesson of car ownership that I tried to impart, I said, if, if this light comes on, the oil light, right? please don't drive the car, Stop. right? You'll, yeah. you'll destroy the car, right? The engine will blow up, right? And, and new engines are expensive. What, what the, the oil in democracy is faith and belief in the system, mm-hmm. right? Right. That, that's what, that's, that's what makes it work. Mm-hmm. Faith mm-hmm. and belief. And what, what you've seen with, with the cynicism of McConnell, the majority is, is a collapse of faith and belief because of the actions of the people whose first thought every day should be, how do you strengthen faith and belief in the system? I mean, you think about a Biden presidency. I I hope he will call a bunch of them to the White House and say, ladies and gentlemen, we have an enormous crisis in the country, right? We, We have collapsed the, the, the faith and belief of the American people, the trust of the American people in the American system of government. We have to fix it. We have to, we have to talk about it. And this is, this is a generational obligation now. I mean, this is restoring the functioning of our institutions. Is going to be something, it's just not going to be done by March. It's, it, it took a long time for this to happen. It's going to take a long time to fix it. But you know, as they say, the you know the first rule of holes is when you when you find yourself in one, stop fucking digging, and that's that's what we that's what we have to do. Stop digging. Stop making it worse. Stop picking at the scabs. And and I and I hope that that Biden has the wisdom of of that, and 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 that he'll do that. So just as a as a as a way to illustrate i think what each of you are are pointing out about the brokenness of the process and the loss of faith among the american people in the in the system and in the institutions um you know i told this story i think on another episode uh, a while back but early on at the start of the lincoln project i was home with uh having a conversation with a family friend and uh she's conservative and pro life and and we were we were you know discussing the upcoming election, and um, and she was planning on voting for Trump, and it was all about the judges. And here we are talking about the this next judge about to be appointed to the Supreme Court. But I asked her at the time, rhetorically, uh, given all of the damage that that Trump has done to the American system, whether she would be willing to trade 
democracy for autocracy or a theocracy if it meant she got more of what she wanted, which were conservative judges. And I asked it rhetorically because I expected it. Well, obviously not. But the answer she gave was, oh, hmm, I'll have to think about that. And that was, for me, an alarm, uh, a really loud alarm. I was not expecting that. Um, Not from someone who is so, so thoughtful. And so I think that sort of illustrates what what you're all talking about. I mean, feel free to feel free to react or respond to that. But Jennifer, do you think that's characteristic of of the way many Republican voters are are thinking about the election? I don't think it's characteristic of how many are, but I think that's a really shocking uh, alarm sounding to those of us in the Republican Party who see ourselves as classic conservatives, right of center um, of what is really happening out there in the, and, and she's, this isn't, you're not talking about somebody who's part of this fringe, right? You know, you're not talking about white nationalism or something. That's somebody who has become so invested in the idea that her vision, her faith, her value is the only one that should be applied in the country, which of course is exactly diametrically opposed to what Republicanism was supposed to be about to begin with. I think it, I think it's really dangerous when we let ourselves get drawn into that place. And when we, it's, and again, I mean, in this moment, looking at the election where I'm looking at it from always from the perspective of a Republican who's trying to convince other Republicans as Republicans, like people really need to Think about what that means. We are supposed to be the defenders of democracy. We are supposed to be the ones who are polishing the light bulb in that beacon of hope for freedom-seeking people everywhere. We as Republicans are the ones who are supposed to be the voice for liberty and that for those First Amendment freedoms that you know you referenced a couple of minutes ago. Um, and when we if we have reached a point in this in this party where. Because they, we have decided, not we, they have decided that they are going to be the party of Trump. And people should be clear there is a conscious decision that has been made by Republican Party leaders that they are now going to be the party of Trump. Because of that, that means we are now the party of, we would rather consider a theocracy, a, you know, a, 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 an authoritarian leadership model in our country rather than allow for a democratic process for choosing our Supreme Court justices. My guess is too is that if if the if the situation were flipped mm-hmm. and you said, well, you know, um there's gonna be a left of center autocracy. Right. Right. A leftist authoritarian government probably be the worst thing she ever heard of. Exactly. But but Reed, that's exactly what the Republican Party did throughout the uh oh, Barack Obama's presidency, their whole attack on him throughout his presidency was that he was trying to move us to that left author- leftist authoritarian um, model of leadership. And we went berserk over it. We went berserk over it. So for anyone to su- suggest otherwise now, um, it's, it's just the, the depth of hypocrisy. And it is so dangerous in this moment for any of those Republicans who have any thought in their minds right now that maybe Trump isn't the right guy, it is dangerous for them not to take action on election day. And to, you know, just on that point too, I mean, you know, when Joe Biden is elected and he takes office and there's probably a democratic Senate, 
they'll be back to the same thing, right? Joe Biden's a socialist. Joe Biden's this. Joe Biden's that. He's a tax and spend liberal, you know, when, of course, they've been spending on dad's black card for four years, right? Maybe longer. Um, it's and currently getting denied, though. <laughs> right. It's declined more and more. Um, right. So I, I think that what what we're seeing now, we should expect that we will see in their minority status, which is McConnell has always been an expert in utilizing, you know, he's a majoritarian when he has the majority and he's a minoritarian when he has the minority and he will do everything he can to stop anything that Joe Biden wants to do because he's just trying to get to 2022. Is Mitch McConnell the most dangerous person in the Republican party right now? Uh, I mean, I guess by de facto, de facto he is because he's not going right. anywhere. That's a, exactly. So, I mean, he has, he, he, he lacks principle of any kind. And so I think it is important for groups like ours yeah. and other principled, yeah. you know, independent, conservative, Republican, whoever it is, that when when the new administration does come on, if there's there will be broad-based, and my guess is probably pretty common sense work that needs to be done legislatively in this country yeah. around the pandemic and everything else. Yeah. Yep. McConnell will do everything he can to try and stop that. So who are those five senators who are going to, you know, decide he's not worth the trouble. Is it Romney? Is it Murkowski? Yeah. Who, whoever it might be. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they're going to have to be on notice too that, you know, you don't get to just say no because you're not in charge. It's time anymore. to collaborate. Yeah. Go ahead, Steve. He certainly would be regarded as such by, by the founders if we could, if we could talk to them. Um, you know, certainly, yeah. certainly by, by Madison and, and Hamilton. Um, if you read the Federalist Papers, he was he was the ink, he's the incarnation of of what they worried about so profoundly. Now that we have covered the most important news of the week, I want to look at the week ahead. Steve, what have you got your eye on? The election now is is coming at us like a freight train on the on the tracks. It's getting close. Um, let's look. Be all of us vigilant for for extremism. Um, for incitements to violence, to craziness, you know, we'll continue to see Donald Trump unravel publicly. Um, it will get crazier before it before it calms down. Um, but in the end, um, we got to be focused on the things that we can all control, and the things that we can all control are voting. Vote, vote early. If you can vote today, vote today. Right. If if you can do it tomorrow, do it tomorrow. But but go out and vote, participate, donate, um, and we'll be we'll be very focused on our organization. Obviously, you know, looking at these Senate races. You know, we we don't want Joe Biden to have a lonely victory. And um, the the race that I'm going to be looking at um, this week, that I know we are all of us as a group really proud of. And our role in it is this Alaska Senate race. We, we see the first poll with Dr. Al ahead. Um, I think that's terrific. I love our new ad up there. And um, so we have, we, have, we have about two weeks left. And, you know, work hard, fight hard, and get this guy out of office. Reed? Um, I think we're supposed to have a debate next week. So we be, are. So it'll be interesting to see how both uh, both campaigns are preparing for that. Obviously, we know that the Biden campaign will actually do some preparation. Um, it'll be interesting to see, um, you know, what Trump does 
uh, you know, to Steve's point about his health is, you know, if they really got him hopped up on these steroids, how much is he actually going to be able to travel? Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, there, the, the Biden campaign has something like $434 million <laughs> to spend in the next 18 days. And it's probably more than that at this point, yeah. cause they're not still raising money. Yeah. Um, I mean, that's a great problem to what have. What do you do with that? I, 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 at this I, point, what do you I, do I'm with not that? Sure, I'm not sure what it is you do. I don't know that. I mean, you could be in the buying TV stations business as yeah. opposed to the buying advertising right. business. Right. Um, <laughs> you just, you know, just, you know, find every suburban, you know, radio station in the country and just buy it up. Um, yeah. So I think it'll be interesting to see how that turns. I think to Steve's point too, the early voting, I think we're seeing um, the long lines are born, especially in, in states like Georgia and Texas, because of, you know, active efforts on the parts of the governors there to make it more difficult to participate. Voters do not appear to be falling for that, right? They're willing to stand in in line for hours and hours and hours. And I think we're going to continue to see that. And so I think to Steve's point, if you have, if you have your ballot, get it in. If your friends and family have their ballots, tell them to get it out. Um, We can't leave anything to chance here. Um, And I think Steve's right. I think that what you'll start to see from us you know, in the next couple of weeks is, you know, reminders to those, you know, there's Republican governors, those Republican leaders in Washington, Mm -hmm. those Republican legislators that say you have a job to do. And it is to sit and watch the reaction, you know, the, the election results, not get involved where you don't belong. Um, And I think there also needs to be from the democratic governors and attorneys general in these States uh, a show of authority that yeah. if you try and if you try and uh, suppress someone, if you try and intimidate someone, you're going to go to jail. Yes, Jennifer, what are you watching? Well, we're all watching the same thing. Election Day coming at us like a freight train, as Steve said. The yeah. um, you know I, I love Reed's point about how much money is coming into the Biden campaign because it's happening at a moment when the Trump campaign is going broke, and that you know in that that sets that balance even further out of whack. Um, my role in all of this has always been to persuade Republicans to do the right thing. I'm the Republicans and Independence for Biden coalition uh, for the Lincoln Project. And um, so I'm going to be more focused than ever in these last two weeks on trying to message those undecided Republicans or those Republicans who have a moral, uh, a, a moral compass, who have a sense of moral courage and just need you know, to continue the conversation a little bit more. Um, there's a, a piece in USA Today that I wrote to that effect. That's a fairly comprehensive argument that if there are people out there saying, how do I talk to other, you know, Republicans, other people in my family who just aren't there yet, please find the piece uh, with my name on it in USA Today and share it because I wrote it for exactly that purpose. I'm looking at the state-by-state polls in, in states like Florida and Pennsylvania um, in particular, in Arizona, where I think Republicans have the ability and the opportunity to move the needle there. I have said from the beginning two things. One, uh, or they, they, they go together, you know, that I want the outcome of this election to be so overwhelmingly in favor of Joe Biden that one, it cannot be contested in court, and two, that it sends the strongest possible message to every Republican in elected office and every Republican who will ever put their name on the ballot in the future, not to pull this with us again. And the only way that happens is if they see that Donald Trump has been defeated by the same people who elected him four years ago, that he is being, that he's defeated by his own party. Um, And so that's my focus. Those are the numbers I'm watching. That's what I'll be looking for as the next week unfolds. 
There is one story, this is not a, a week look ahead, this is a very long-term look ahead, but there's one story I want to flag, which is that on Tuesday, the Supreme Court granted a request from the Trump administration to halt the census count while an appeal plays out on a lower court's order that the counting continue. And the lower court would have required a census count to continue until October 31st. Now, this ruling, this stay, effectively ends the census count. And this is going to impact the next decade of American politics and policy um, from school funding and infrastructure, uh, reapportionment and redistricting efforts, which, you know, as you all know, is is the most important thing that nobody talks about that impacts uh, impacts electoral politics for a decade. And, um, you know, Reed, you and I have talked a lot about this Um this probably is worthy of another series of episodes at some point after the election, but um, but I just want everybody to be paying attention to this story because it's uh, you know Republicans have been really good, really really good at this for the last twenty five years, and uh, and I think it is one of the most corrosive forces in uh, in politics and led to. Yeah, uh, I would also say that you know outside of the legislative aspects of it, both uh, congressional and local, um, I think it gives you a sense of really how what a lack of competence most governors have. If I was a Republican governor and I knew that I was due, you know, an extra seat um, and I might not get that now because they stopped counting. Or if I'm a, you know, if I'm due more federal resources because my population has increased exactly. and I'm not going to get that because exactly. they stopped counting, I'd be pissed. Yes. So just, yes. It, I think we also, you know, aside from the institutional pieces of this, we should actually try and elect some people that know what the hell they're doing, yep. or at least have an idea of what it is they'd like to do and find people that can help them do that. And But Ron, this goes <laughs> yeah. exactly what I said before about Reed's point about institutions. This is an institution that is being undermined and destroyed. That is to hit what he just said. It's going to have a direct impact on the resources that go into your yep. state, into your county, into your child's school. And that is what yep. Donald Trump yep. and the Republicans in Washington yep. right now are trying to blow up. And it's in the Constitution. By the way, and, right, by the way. Right. There, is, there is that, by, by the way. Just as an aside. <laughs> we didn't just come up with this in like 1960 and be like, you know what we should do? We right. should count everybody every right. 10 years. Yeah. That sounds like right. a good yeah. idea. <laughs> yeah. And on that note, you know, I do want to read one listener question before we go. Uh, Reed, this is to you. Andrew Pate writes... Um, as members of the Republican Party, the question I have for you is this. What next? How do you save slash rehab the Republican Party? Is that beyond the scope of the Lincoln Project? Is it beyond saving? And, you know, we've talked about this a number of times on town halls, and it's something that we're actively thinking about right now as we as we as we careen toward election day. Um, what would you say to Andrew and the, you know, many thousands of people who have asked the same question? What what next? Um well, I think on the party, and I'm going to speak for my all of you there yeah. here, um, I think that's going to have to be someone else's issue um, for a couple of reasons. One, I think that we've burned our boats with the party. Uh, two, at least I can speak for myself personally. I don't yep. have any desire to go back to that. Yep. Uh, and three, I don't think it's reckoning is over yet. Um, I think to use Steve's astronomical metaphor, the star is is collapsing and is getting hotter and uglier. Uh, but it's sort of got to go supernova yeah. before before there's going to be any real yeah. uh, you know movement there. Um, I think what we do next, I think, is more broadly, like we've been discussing, I think, at length today, institutional. Uh, I think that you know the Biden administration will need a strong coalition partner uh, of the type I believe we can play with millions of people. Yeah. Um, 
you know, that we can, we can rally to a banner. Um, and I think that democracy needs a lot of help. Um, uh, Steve mentioned it as far as voting rights, civil rights, uh, ethics reform, all those things, the foundational pieces, um, need a lot of work. And I think we can and should be there. And then I think, you know, when Donald Trump loses, he's not going away. Um, you know, he'll go buy OANN or something else and people give him money to do it and they'll continue to drive all that ugliness. Um, and there has to be, you know, sort of a voice of America for America. And I think that we will be there for that. This episode was recorded when I hosted the Lincoln Project podcast on this feed. If you have any questions or advice, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And please know that even if we don't respond, we read every email we get and we love hearing from you. If you enjoy the show, it would help us if you could rate and review us wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.